In this episode, I am once again joined by Joe Evans, founder of the Rangdrol Foundation and teacher of Dzogchen under the name Jigme Rangdrol. Joe explains the significance of the guru-disciple relationship in Dzogchen, details the various forms it may take, and reveals his own special relationship with Dzogchen master teacher Namkai Norbu Rinpoche. Joe considers the power of devotion, describes the practice of guru yoga, and advises on how to assess a Dzogchen teacher's authenticity and motivation. Joe also discusses his own journey as a Dzogchen teacher, reflects on the significance of the endorsements he has received from his gurus, Dungze Rigtsin Jorge Rinpoche and Acharya Malcolm Smith, and offers his heart advice to those who wish to practice Dzogchen. So without any further ado, Joe Evans. Joe Evans, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Well, I'm so delighted to talk with you again. That first episode we recorded was very well received indeed, entitled as it was, American Dzogchenpa. And in that episode, we covered some of your background, but there's still much to cover in your story. We are at the point where you'd done a retreat, an intensive retreat, and you began to have potent lucid dreams. And on that same retreat, you were reading a book by Namkai Norbu, who spoke about the sorts of things you were experiencing in those dreams. And you thought, this is quite interesting indeed. And most of your instruction to that point, you've been encouraged, I'm just recapping here, you've been encouraged to ignore these sorts of nyam, as you put them, experiences, meditative experiences of various types, significant dreams and so on. Ignore that stuff and focus on practice and so on, which is one one approach to such things. But Namkai Norbu was saying, no, you can use these things, you can harness them or interpret them in various ways. And then you were, it kindled in you a desire to seek out Namkai Norbu. And that's where we got to. So could you, like an audible, uh, an audible session, pick up where we, pick up where we left off, please, and take us forward. I know there's much interesting stuff to come. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that point for me, it's actually kind of a nice segue for doing a two-part episode, I guess, because for me, that really, that represented a significant crux or point in my evolution as a practitioner was that kind of experience, because I'd always had this idea that I would eventually encounter in a serious way and engage in Dzogchen teachings. And I think, as I mentioned before, I'd kind of been around the periphery with some of Norbert Rinpoche's webcasts, because back then he was he was the only person that was doing this. And it was at that point, it was, you know, it was quite unusual for someone to be teaching uh, Dharma in such a serious way, openly for webcast on webcast for free and all this. So it was really extraordinary. But at that point in that retreat, I really kind of made this decision to deepen that relationship and make it more serious. And as soon as I left the retreat, that was what I ended up doing. And at this time, I was working for Wisdom Publications. And many, many of my relationships as the practitioner really started to come into play and connect at that point. Like this was the same time that I first met Acharya Malcolm Smith 
in person. Like I'd interact with interacted with him online, which many people did back then uh, during the old Isanga days and all that when there was a very vigorous online Dharma community that often debated with one another. Um, but I got to meet him in person shortly after that retreat. And that was, was and continues to be an extraordinarily influential and positive relationship for me. He's always been a great friend and mentor and teacher for many years now. And I started tuning into every one of Norbert Rinpoche's webcasts. So I was living in Boston and he would be in, you know, Romania or Italy or wherever he was teaching at the time. So that meant that I was getting up at odd hours of the night to participate in these webcasts. And back then the video rarely worked. So it was often just listening to Rinpoche teach. And <clears throat> this was really formative for me because it, st it really started to define my path in a concrete way, as opposed to, my path being something that I knew was going to develop at some point. So I was like going through the motions and I was practicing and I was doing my best to be diligent. But as I think I'd mentioned before, a lot of my practice was involved with tension. You know, I was kind of like, I've got to recite these mantras. I've got to like do these accumulations and all these things. And this sort of like more kind of tense practice, like your hair's on fire kind of way, rather than practicing like a really qualified and sustainable way so i was doing a lot of practice but in my recollection of it anyways it kind of lacked the depth that was coming and establishing this relationship with norbert Rinpoche really is kind of what started to bring that around and then getting to meet him and having interactions with him really solidified that relationship and solidified my practice in a lot of ways I'm curious what you mean by this phrase you've repeated a few times, establish a relationship. Yeah. What do you, what do you mean by that? Um, I understand that in Dzogchen often it's emphasized teacher to student relationship is very important, actually essential. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've read that or I heard that. And um, I know Nobu Rinpoche, when he was alive, had many students, hundreds of students, thousands maybe of students. So yeah. to get access to him uh, on a one-to-one -one basis, and I've heard that was not very easy. But, yeah. uh, but you, you also said that you exchanged emails with him and had personal conversations. So I'm curious, what, is, what does it mean to you when you say this word, this phrase, establish a relationship, and how did that unfold with Namco Nobu Rinpoche? Yeah, so <clears throat> this principle, as you mentioned in Dzogchen teachings, is essential, this kind of relationship. we, Our tradition is a living tradition that's really rooted in people collaborating with each other, teachers and students collaborating with each other and students collaborating with each other as well. So Vajra siblings, like everybody's working together toward the same goal, which is awakening to diminish at the very least the suffering of oneself and others through the profound path of the great perfection. And these teachings are rooted in Upadesha instructions, the intimate instructions of the teacher. And sometimes this gets a little bit confused because people have this kind of romantic idea because we read a lot of Namtars, this classical Tibetan literature. And these are about famous people, famous yogis who went on to have some sort of major historical impact. And we get this idea that we have to be in a cave somewhere with our teacher one-on-one -on -one 
and they're like, you know, come over here and I'm going to whisper the really good shit into your ear now. And you're the only one that's getting it. And then we kind of get this idea that that's what the, the oral transmission lineage is, this sort of this ear whispered lineage. But the ear whispered lineage or this oral lineage, this heard lineage is the explanation of the meaning of the teachings that's contained within the tantras themselves. So if you're establishing a relationship with a teacher, this means that you're receiving that transmission from someone who has received the transmission themselves, and they're giving you these Upadesha instructions on how to actually integrate the meaning of the path into all of your experiences of your life. So connecting with a teacher and having that kind of relationship can be a one-on-one -on -one kind of experience, or it can be something that you do in the context of a large group of people in person, and it can even occur in my opinion anyways, live through a webcast with someone like Norbert Rinpoche who has this capacity to really explain the teachings in the way that he did and make them meaningful for everyone who is listening, oftentimes thousands of people. But from the perspective of the student, establishing that relationship means that you're really making the decision to take that transmission and that collaboration seriously and apply those instructions that you're receiving. So I have had the benefit of having one-on-one -on -one conversations and interactions and emails with my teachers and things like this and receiving guidance from them in that way. But I've also just been in the room, you know, it's not like being a special person and having some sort of, you know, relationship that was necessarily different from the relationships that other people had. It For me, it more involves actually doing my best to apply the instructions that I receive from another person, my teachers. So I'm receiving them and then I'm applying them to the best of my ability. And that's really establishing that relationship and making that commitment to actually honor that relationship and honor the transmission as best as I, as best as I can for my entire life, you know, not just for a period of time that maybe I'm doing a formal practice or something like that, but always trying to embody the meaning of that transmission as best as I can. And that not only is the fundamental aspect of my relationships with my teachers, but it's also the essence of my path. Like the main practice that we really do in a formal way is we practice guru yoga and we're connecting with the meaning of the intimate instructions that we receive from our teachers because i don't know about you but i didn't get to meet shakyamuni so i didn't receive teachings from him i don't have a relationship with buddha shakyamuni i have a relationship with chogyal namkai norabu and dungse rigson dorje and you know many many other teachers of mine so this is the relationship that really is the most significant for me, and it defines my entire path. Very interesting indeed. Is it necessary that the teacher knows who you are? If one-on-one -on -one is not so necessary, if whispering in the ear is not so necessary, is it necessary that the teacher knows who you are? And sometimes you see the movies and you hear these accounts and this is sort of one-on-one -on -one in the sense that the teacher knows who you are. Maybe the teacher is aware of your practice and where it's at. I don't know if that matters particularly, but um, it's, it's, I think, an assumed part of that. So 
if you're in a group of say 100 people or 200 people or even on a webcast with however many people is it necessary that the teacher knows who you are could you could you still say you have a relationship with that teacher does it still count i suppose from a sort of Chen guru perspective yeah um i think it absolutely counts and i think the reason why it counts is because we have this principle in Dzogchen teachings that the meaning of the teachings is explained or the, the Dzogchen teachings are explained through words and meanings, which I think I mentioned a little bit in our last session as well. So if you're listening and you're present and you're doing your best to discover the state of your own instant presence, while that state is being described to you from a person that's also sustaining that recognition, you're connected in this way. You're connected in the transmission period. So on a very fundamental level, it counts because you received the transmission. You've connected with the lineage in a serious way. And then it's contingent upon the student, right, to actually practice diligently to discover the meaning of that. And this is another area where I feel like people experience a lot of tension around Dzogchen teachings is that they'll receive some teaching or, you know, so-called pointing out instructions or direct introduction, whatever people want to call it. And it'll be maybe some sort of ritual will be performed or something like that. And the teacher is either in front of them in person or in front of them on a screen or something like that. And then maybe they shout this syllable pet and the student thinks, okay, I was supposed to have some sort of crazy spiritual experience that changed my life, but nothing happened. And then they think, I must not have gotten it. And then people experience tension and they experience doubt in their path. But if you're actually engaging and you're collaborating with the teacher, you got it. You may not have discovered something in that moment, but you have received the transmission, you've connected with the lineage, and you also have connected with the methods for actually having that discovery. So a lot of times people have this idea that if they participate in Dzogchen teachings and they don't have some sort of miraculous recognition of Rigpa or something like this, that they've somehow failed and they have to go find another teacher and try again and all these other things because they have this idea that they're supposed to have some sort of experience in the moment. And this isn't necessarily the case. So people should be able to relax a little bit. And what they do is then you go home and you practice diligently on your own in order to bring forth that experience that you've been introduced to through the transmission. And in Dzogchen teachings, we have many methods for accomplishing this. We practice guru yoga, we have a system of semzins, and we have rushan, we have our own systems of preliminaries, nundros, for actually directly encountering one's own state. And then we continue to the fruition of the practices of Trekcho and Togal. And the way that we actually go about this process is by receiving more teachings, receiving more introductions, if we have the opportunity to ask questions to our teachers and receive answers that are useful and personal, these are the ways that this relationship functions through time as you practice a path, because we're practicing a path. We have this understanding that, or this idea that Dzogchen teachings are sort of non-gradual or simultaneous or instantaneous and all of these other things. And that's true when we're thinking about the basis itself. The nature of the individual because that can't be changed it can't be altered it's uncreated all of these other things 
but still we're experiencing the afflictions of being a human being, of living in samsara. So this inevitably necessitates, necessitates some kind of a path. And that path is contingent upon receiving direct introduction, transmission, applying the instructions that you've received so that you can decide upon one thing slash go beyond doubts so that you then can have serious authentic confidence in your own liberation. These are the, the three statements of Garab Dorje in very sort of brief form. But this is how this process unfolds. And that process can unfold by, for example, the the notion of having like a one-on-one -on -one experience with a teacher as many, many students, when you would go and see Norbert Rinpoche teach in person, for example, there would be many people there, like in the States, sometimes a couple hundred people at certain venues and even more in Europe, like many more people in some instances. But Norbert Rinpoche was incredibly generous with his time and with the teachings. So he would finish teaching and typically what he would do is he would teach maybe two sessions a day, sometimes one for a couple hours or so. And then he would sit there and everybody could line up and you could walk up to him and you could ask a question or shake his hand or get your tanka consecrated by him that you had commissioned to kind of resemble him a little bit like, like this one behind me. This is a tanka of Grab Dorje that I had commissioned. And then I brought it to Norbert Rupshe and he consecrated it. We consecrated it together. It was really beautiful, but this wasn't in the context of us like hanging out at his house or something. This was in the context of me walking up with this painting with, you know, a hundred people behind me to ask him to have this moment with me. And I feel like, I don't know if I have an answer for whether or not it's necessary for the teacher to like really know you individually, like what's going on in your life and things like that. Like even what's going on in your practice, they should be able to do their best to answer your questions about your practice. If you bring them to you, or if you bring them to that, to your teacher, they should be able to give you some kind of guidance, but I don't know if it's necessary that they actually know the intimate details of your life and things like that. But, I always felt like Norbert Rinpoche knew me. And I don't think I was unique in that situation. I think Norbert Rinpoche, at least in some way, knew everybody. He knew all of us. And I always felt like this from him. I always felt that he really knew who I was from the first time that we met in person. It felt this way. And I don't know if that was true like he had some sort of capacity to really know who we all were or recognize us in some way or if he was just able to convey that kind of skillful warmth and kindness to all of his students it was extraordinary so you could have this kind of experience but it was a little intimidating so like sometimes people you know were a little intimidated so there were several times where I would encourage people to go up and at least shake his hand so they could have that kind of connection with him. But you could walk up, you'd ask him any question, he'd answer your question, he'd shake your hand, he'd consecrate your tanka, whatever it was. So he gave everybody this opportunity if they were willing to overcome their anxiety about standing in the line and going up and shaking his hand and things like that. So it's a bit of both, I think. You know, some teachers I think are incredibly skillful at 
either actually having the capacity to know who their students are in an intimate way, or they're very skillful in making everyone truly feel their guidance. And that's something that I've always felt was incredibly skillful and important with my teachers was they always, they really have always felt to me like they, whether or not they knew me in an intimate way, they understood me in a fundamental way. Very interesting indeed. And presumably that ability to understand you in a fundamental way is a product of their enlightenment. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's a certainly a product of their commitment to the path and their commitment to their students and the role of bodhicitta can't be it can't be dismissed you know like if someone's living a life like the lives that chogyal namkai norbu and dungsen rimshay live or lived you can't deny that this is completely integrated with extraordinary kindness and generosity and affection for living beings like it's apparent you know you don't dedicate your entire life to helping people evolve as individuals and diminish their experience of suffering and their experience of conflict day in and day out if you haven't embodied those qualities. And that comes with this fundamental recognition that at the basic state, people are essentially the same. Sentient beings crave happiness and they want to avoid the experience of suffering. And thus we have the nine vehicles of methods to overcome that, at least this nine yana breakdown in the Nyingma tradition. And then teachers explain those vehicles to students based upon the sincere interest of those disciples, of those students. And skillful teachers navigate that space very, very well. You mentioned that guru yoga Guru Yoga is one of the core practices. I wonder if you might explain what Guru Yoga is. Yeah, so essentially we have a couple of different primary focuses for the practice of Guru Yoga. One of them is very this very basic principle that every time we do Guru Yoga, we are reintroducing ourselves to the intimate instructions and the empowerments that we received. So in most Guru Yoga practices, you visualize someone like Guru Rinpoche or Sakya Pandita in the sky in front of you as the embodiment of all of your teachers, and then you receive the path empowerment. So you're receiving the empowerments that you received over again. So this practice is really rooted in having already made this kind of connection with the lineage and with the teacher. And then you essentially reintroduce or re-empower yourself every day. And this has this function of re-establishing the interdependent relationship between yourself, the teacher, the lineage of transmission, the ripening of the three kayas that abide as potential within all sentient beings. This is the fundamental purpose that's occurring here. And we're using 
this relationship with the guru to purify our negativity, to purify any of our samayas, because every time that we take empowerment, we're purifying our samayas. So we're doing this over and over and over again in order to root ourselves in the path. And this is really the fundamental aspect of how we maintain this connection, this transmission, is through the practice of guru yoga, whether it's through elaborate visualizations and recitations, or through very simple methods of actually being in the state of guru yoga, which is your own rigpa, the state that you've been introduced to. Once you've discovered that, abiding in that state is guru yoga as well. You're actually able to be integrated in the knowledge that you receive from your teacher. You're able to be integrated in the nature that they've introduced you to that has always been present. And you either do that by going directly into that state or through this process of reenacting, being introduced to it and recognizing this relationship between yourself, the teacher and the transmission. And like I was saying before, this, this collaboration, this relationship that you establish as a student and then you take seriously because it's, it's inappropriate for a teacher to come up to someone and say, you seem like an interesting person. You want some Dzogchen teachings? Like this is completely inappropriate. But if someone comes up and they're sincerely interested and they request teachings, this is a student putting forth the effort and the sincerity to actually establish that relationship. And then once that relationship's established, then this process of practicing guru yoga to maintain and enliven that relationship over time unfolds on a daily basis. And this expands into all of your experience, all of your experiences being the display of the ultimate guru, one's own pristine consciousness. So you go from this relationship with another person to actually being able to be relaxed and integrated into all of the appearances of your sensory experiences and all of the cognitions of your mind as being the display of your own state through that which is introduced to you by the teacher. So this is that fundamental aspect of the relationship with the teacher. It's Guru Yoga is not about making, putting someone up on a pedestal, right? Like our teachers don't need us to kind of like prop them up and like worship them or put them up on a pedestal or something like this. That's not the point. It's always for the development of the student. If someone's teaching Dzogchen, if someone's being a Dzogchen teacher and they're doing so sincerely and they're taking it very seriously, their entire job is to make themselves no longer necessary. So it should never be about propping up the teacher. The teacher is giving Dzogchen teachings so that students can become liberated so that they can discover their own potentiality for liberation, not in order to become a famous person or to be adored by people or have receive offerings and things like this. The entire purpose is liberation. And liberation is very serious. So if we're engaging in that path and we're taking it seriously as it deserves to be taken, then we practice in this way. And we do our very best to actually discover something in every moment. And this is entirely contingent upon the Upadesha instructions that we receive from our teachers. Very interesting indeed. You mentioned there that a Dzogchen master or teacher is not 
does not become that in order to become famous and receive offerings and be lauded by their students. But it is the case, it seems, that if you are a successful Dzogchen teacher, you do become quite famous. <laughs> there is that, that can happen. And, um, you do get offerings and your you know, students do think you're great. The position of a religious teacher has always attracted both those with the sincere bodhicitta motivation and also those who, who perhaps are attracted to the, the glitz and the glam and the status and whatever else the case may be. So how does one determine the difference as a beginner who might not know really much of the doctrine, for example, might not know perhaps much of, much of the rarefied states, such as Rigpa, that are on offer. How could one determine the difference uh, as, when searching out a Dzogchen teacher? Yeah, I think the first thing that you can notice with not a great deal of observation is whether or not someone's sincerely kind. If a teacher is sincere, kind, diligent in their own practice, then these are ways that we can start to navigate that space. And again, this goes beyond this idea of fancy titles or what kind of outfits someone wears and all of these other things. This is dependent upon the student actually observing the individual that they're in this relationship with and determining if they're kind. Are they explaining the teachings in a thorough way? If there are questions that need to be answered, are they available to answer them? These are some sort of very basic ways to approach this kind of recognition. And in my opinion and my experience, humility as a teacher is, it's kind of a dead giveaway that this person is doing the job for the right reasons, is if they're actually humble and generous and kind. Simple Mahayana basics. And this has been my experience. For example, Dungse Rigson Dorje uh, really exudes all of these qualities for me. He is incredibly kind and humble. And he just, he's ripe with these qualities. And you feel this when you're around him. You know, he's kind of, he doesn't really present himself as any kind of extravagant kind of person. He's kind of quiet. And being around him is beautiful and loving. Like you feel this kind of thing. And in my experience, that's been probably the most readily apparent sign of the sincerity of a teacher. For me, this is my perspective, right? So for me, that's something that's really always stood out. And I feel like he really embodies that. And Norbert Rimshay embodied just this voracious generosity that just made it 
you you couldn't deny where Rinpoche was coming from. So this has been, those things have been really significant. And I think if people take the time to observe their teachers and examine their own perceptions to make sure that we're not kind of falling into this trap of, oh, this person seems very elegant or this person has a really cool title or they were born into a very interesting family or whatever. You know, if we can, all of those things can be very enticing. And I'm not saying that people with titles and interesting heritages and things like that aren't fantastic teachers. But as students, I do think it's important that we not become enamored with those things. And we actually give ourselves as students the opportunity to really feel the kindness of our teachers. And the best way that we can do that is by practicing the instructions that they give us. And it might seem a little bit simplistic because there are all of these exotic teachings and these interesting methods. But in my own experience, doing my best to actually follow the simplest instructions from my teachers has been the most important aspect of my practice and the most important aspect of my life because my life is my practice. I'm alive every moment and every moment is an opportunity to discover. And that entirely relies upon the kindness of my teachers, 100%. What do you mean that your being alive relies on the kindness of, or and your life being a practice relies on the kindness of your teachers entirely? What do you mean by that? Yeah, essentially we have this yeshe, this pristine, original consciousness, this untainted nature of our consciousness. All sentient beings have this. And then we encounter the teachings, we encounter a kind teacher who gives us the Upadesha instructions for how to discover that. And then we apply those instructions. And those instructions aren't limited to some kind of a method, some sort of method where you wake up in the morning and you do some sort of yogic exercise or visualization technique. Of course, you can do these things as supports for your practice. They're fantastic. But once we actually start to discover that the nature of all of the appearances, all of the experiences and appearances that we have with our consciousness and our senses are connected with this potentiality of our own awakening, then we're really starting to live our lives as Dzogchen practitioners. And this is really, I think, the most significant teaching that I've received from my teachers. You know, like there's titles for all kinds of things. And I've received these transmissions, like the 17 Tantras. I've received those a couple of times now. And like the Chetsun Ningtik and the Yeshe Lama, all these very famous transmissions. And these are fantastic. But if we can really learn how to discover our nature while we're at the Thanksgiving dinner table with, you know, our very vocal political uncle uncle that we disagree with or something like that, then we're integrating our experience of the teachings into our daily life. So rather than 
having fantasies about being able to go off somewhere and live on a mountain and do some sort of Togal retreat for seven years or something like that, which if people can do, that's wonderful. Of course, like this is great, but this is a little bit unrealistic for most practitioners. So what do we do? How do we practice in a way that's really intensive is by integrating the instructions we've received from our teachers into as many moments of our lives as possible. And this means that we're eating, sleeping, sitting, walking, all of these things integrated in our knowledge of the teachings that we've received from our teachers. So this is how we actually live our lives as Dzogchen practitioners. This is how you live your life as a yogi. And this is this Bepe Neldropa, this uh, like hidden yogi kind of idea, is because then you're just in the world. You're living in the world, and by all appearances, you're a totally normal person. You're not even necessarily a spiritual practitioner at all. Nobody can tell. And if nobody can tell, nobody has any expectations of you. So you're free to integrate your experience and your practice continuously. When you go to work, when you go to school, when you're interacting with family and things like this. Of course, in order to be able to do that, you have to receive those intimate instructions, those Upadesha instructions, and then you have to do enough practice to have this discovery and have this understanding of your own Rigpa or instant presence actually be stabilized. But this is the path, and this is our life. And as Norbert Rinpoche used to say, we're living in time, and time is passing. So if we're just going to get up in the morning and recite some mantras and meditate for a few minutes or whatever, or even a couple of hours every morning, and then go and be in the world in a distracted way for the other 22 hours of the day, I'm sorry, but this is insufficient. Some people are interested in being Buddhists and going through some sort of formula of practice or making offerings and doing prostrations and things like this. And again, all fantastic things. But unless we actually get into the essence and the meaning of all of these teachings, this is only going to get you so far. I'm far more interested in being a Buddha than in being a Buddhist. And the way that we can actually accomplish that, living in the modern world and in Western civilization and things like this, or even this Eastern civilization, like the this distinction between East and West, I find completely ridiculous. But living in the world as a human being, the way that we can actually accomplish awakening is by being present in that state that we've been introduced to by our teachers as much as we possibly can, no matter what we're doing. And if we're in that state, inevitably, we're going to do less harm. It's much easier for you to practice ahimsa if you're actually in your nature, because then you're not clinging to appearances. You're not engaged in this process of acceptance and rejection, pursuing, clinging, and avoiding different situations. You're authentic. You're natural. You're relaxed, and this gives you the opportunity to actually engage with people in a way that does less harm and other beings, not just people, animals, unseen beings, everything. This is what it means to live your life as a Dzogchen practitioner. And is that the sort of thing one builds up to? 
And if so, how? I can imagine falling short of that um, mm -hmm. most of the time, <laughs> maybe even all the time. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a great question. And yeah, it's not it's easier said than done. But we have very simple advice. So there's a lot of exoticism around Dzogchen teachings, but there's also a lot of very simple advice. And Longchenpa says in his Lama Yangtik, he essentially says something along the lines of, the student is introduced to their state, Rigpa, by the teacher. And then they maintain that knowledge by being mindful. So Buddha Dharma 101, mindfulness, what Norbert Rinpoche used to call presence, being present, being undistracted. And in Tibetan, this word for mindfulness too, this, we have this word drempa. And this also means to remember or to recall. So you're continuously remembering and recalling the knowledge that you've been introduced to by your teacher. And you can do this through the method of guru yoga. So you're continuously being present in your life so that you're not distracted. And if you're being present and mindful, you then have the opportunity to remember the teachings, to reflect upon their meaning, to remember your teacher, to apply the methods you've received from them. And then through that process, you are able to be integrated in your own state and continue in your life in this way. Norbert Rinpoche used to break things down into these pieces of advice that he would give at the end of every retreat really four pieces, three, three pieces, four pieces of advice that he would give all the time. Number one, guru yoga. And this doesn't just mean you do some sort of method of guru yoga. This means that you actually be in the state of guru yoga as much as you possibly can. Piece of advice number two, just like Longchenpa said, be present, be mindful of that state that you've been introduced to. Number three is work with your circumstances. And this also is completely in, contingent upon being able to recall and be present and mindful. So for example, if you go into someone else's home and they're not a Dharma practitioner and maybe it makes them uncomfortable or something like this and you're not being respectful of their space and you're performing some sort of ostentatious Buddhist ritual in their home, this means that you're not being present because you're not observing the dimension of these other people, and you're not respecting their space. So this is the antithesis of working with circumstances. But if you're being present, and you go into that space, you can be respectful, you can, you know, not disturb anyone's state of mind, which is also this piece of advice from Kempo Jigme Punsak, he says something like, along the lines of, never lose your own path, and never disturb the minds of others. Simple advice not so easy to actually carry out. But if we actually maintain the continuity of that presence, that recollection, then we can actually do our best to navigate those circumstances. And we'll also be more readily ready to notice when we've made a mistake. And rather than avoiding our own hidden faults and things like this, we're actually paying attention to them, which gives us an opportunity to do better next time. So if we're actually engaging in the world this way, then we're able to apply all of the methods and skills that we've developed as a part of our spiritual path, rather than our spiritual path being limited to certain performative rituals or anything else like that. We're actually integrated in every moment.
whether or not we're distracted because we're taking our distractions as the path because we're actually noticing what happens when we become distracted and we're working to do a better job in those kinds of interactions over and over again. This is another thing that I think is really important for practitioners to understand is you're a Dharma practitioner. It's called practice for a reason. You're going to make mistakes. Things are going to come up. Difficult circumstances will arise for you. Guaranteed. What matters is how you deal with those situations. And also that you notice them. Many times people will be practicing and they'll start to notice that they're having some sort of difficulty. Maybe you have some sort of difficulty with establishing the calm state. Like you've got a lot of distracting proliferation of concepts or something like that when you're trying to practice. And many people think of this as being something negative. They're like, oh, I have this problem. Sure, this might be an obstacle for you, but it's also a very positive thing that you're recognizing that obstacle. And this is dependent upon authentically examining your own circumstances and applying appropriate antidotes in order to actually succeed in the ripening of your path. So we're continuously engaging in this way. So we have these pieces of advice, guru yoga, be present, work with your circumstances, and then do your best. Do your best is probably like the first couple times I heard Rinpoche say this, I was like, really? That sounds like something my mom would say before I like went into like a little league game. But if we really think about what it means to do our best, it means that we're really always trying. We're always applying some sort of presence toward our path. And we're examining our situations and our understanding so that we can develop. So it's actually very profound advice. So for me, oftentimes the simplest of advice is the most profound. A piece of advice that I received from Dung Sen Rinpoche that I hold very dear and intimate is that he simply just said something like, whenever you're engaging in any practice, whether or not it's Dzogchen or anything else, do so with bodhicitta and love for sentient beings. It's like this kind of advice that we hear Buddhist teachers say all the time, but it's profound. So we should always be open to these kinds of teachings, because in my experience, these are the kinds of teachings that really make the greatest impact on our experience of our lives. And they're not limited to retreat or a practice session or anything like that. You can actually live this way. Was there anything in particular about receiving that advice from Tunzirington Dorje Rinpoche that made it stand out to you? I expect you'll have heard that sort of thing a lot do everything, all your practice with bodhicitta. Like you said, it's just quite ubiquitous advice. What was it about receiving it from him in particular that struck you so powerfully? I think probably for me, it was just my, honestly, it was probably my devotion to him that just made it make such a significant difference to me is that I so deeply respect him and his opinion and his advice that maybe I'd heard that same advice 
hundreds of times before from my other teachers. And I, you know, wouldn't say that I was dismissive of it. It It's important advice. But there was something about having him say that to me that really made it land. And I think it's because, yeah, I think it's because I love him. And his humility has always been something that I aspire to. Like I've, there's this, something I noticed probably maybe just not that long ago, maybe seven or eight years ago, is I had this experience where I kind of felt like I was, like I wasn't really being myself so much as a practitioner, more as I was trying to be like my teachers. So it almost felt like I was imitating my teachers in a certain way. And I think that actually can be very useful and important to an extent. But there's also something about really developing your own manifestation of the qualities that you've received from your teachers that goes beyond sort of pantomiming them. And receiving pieces of advice, whether it's some sort of profound practice instruction or something seemingly very simple from someone that you have a great deal of respect and devotion for can really change the way that you apply those instructions. And I think this is really the root of what we think of as guru devotion in the teachings. You know, like a lot of times I think this gets a little bit confused and we feel like we have to kind of be really subservient and, you know, kind of grovelly with our teachers and things like this. And a lot of this, you know, is based upon the way that respect is shown in other cultures, especially like in Tibetan culture and things like that and Indian culture and sometimes Westerners, we get a little bit confused about this. But if we're actually really devoted, this means that we have a great deal of respect and even the simplest advice can be transformative for us, for our path. So I think it's rooted in this kind of devotion and respect and learning how to actually be my own practitioner based upon the advice of my students or based upon the advice of my teachers rather than just kind of like trying to be like them. Interesting. I have some more questions on this theme, but let's return, perhaps we'll deal with them later, but let's return to your own timeline, I suppose. So here you are, we've discussed your special connection with Namka Norbu, and you've mentioned some other teachers too. You mentioned Malcolm Smith, you've mentioned Dungze Rigtsen, George Rinpoche. Who's next in terms of your, in terms of your timeline? Who's the next significant teacher? I know you've had several. Yeah, I think in terms of Dzogchen teachings anyways, uh, Dungse Rinpoche was the next one here in the timeline. And at this time, I was kind of, you know, I was receiving a lot of teachings from a lot of different teachers. So I got to meet many teachers like Garchen Rinpoche around this time and Sakya Trichen, uh, who's also a very important teacher of mine. But I was receiving many teachings from many different teachers of many different lineages. But 
In terms of Dzogchen teachings, I met Dungsei Riggs and Dorje Rinpoche at this time. And he was in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts. And he was teaching the Yeshe Lama, um, Jigme Lingpa's practice manual on the Ningtik Yabshi. So it's very important Dzogchen teaching. And he was giving this teaching. And he was quite young. I think he was probably around the same age as I am now. He was in his like mid 40s, I think. And it was brilliant. He gave us this line by line commentary on the Yeshe Lama along with all the empowerments and all the bells and whistles. And it was really extraordinary. And I, I remember coming out of this particular retreat and I was like, I don't know what just happened. I was like, a lot happened. I definitely didn't get all of it, but I really knew that this was the thing for me to do was to really dedicate myself to Dzogchen teachings. So I told Rinpoche this, I made this commitment. I said, you know, I took this commitment with him. I said, this is my, this is my path. These teachings I've received from you. So I'm going to take this very seriously and I'm going to practice this for the rest of my life. And he said, you know, this is very good. <laughs> Pretty simple. Oh, very good. <laughs> and I came out of the retreat and really for the next many years, it involved doing the practices in that particular text combined with uh, other practices that I'd received from Norbert Rinpoche. And at the same time, a week after that particular retreat, actually, I received Kunzang Dechen Lingpa's Troma Nakmo from Dungsen Rinpoche as well. And that was I did a significant retreat of that practice also during the same few years that unfolded after this. So going home after that retreat and really trying to unpack all of that took some time. And my other teachers that really contributed to the unpacking of all that were Acharya Malcolm Smith and Kenshin Namdrol Rinpoche, because those two, they kind of have this this extraordinary capacity for all the details and the explanation of how this particular aspect of the teachings relates to your own personal practice and your experience in a very precise way. So like Acharya Malcolm and Kenshin Namdral, they explain things in extraordinary detail and nuance. So when you have a question, especially, you know, in the good old days when you could just like ask Malcolm a question on Dharma Wheel or Isanga or something, and he'd give you this extraordinarily detailed response. This was very special for a lot of people, I think. So being able to spend the next several years doing my best to practice while being able to have interactions with people like Acharya Malcolm, and then later on encountering Kenshin Namdrol and receiving teachings and transmissions from him, this all ex this kind of created the universe of my practice because I had these extraordinary influences of Chogyal Namkai Norbu giving me all of these teachings, giving these teachings continuously. So I was always receiving more teachings from him. Almost every month he was giving a retreat. And 
one of the biggest takeaways from him was how to actually live my life as a Dzogchen practitioner. And then I received these empowerments and transmissions of the Yeshe Lama that were very complete from Dungse Rinpoche. So I had this deeply rooted connection with transmission and all the aspects of the preliminaries and Trikcho and Togol and Bardo teachings, everything that you need in this package from him. And then I had these extraordinary teachers who helped and continue to help clarify gaps in knowledge and understanding. So all of this coming together in this package of extraordinary support that I received from other people, my teachers, has defined my experience of the path of being a Dzogchen practitioner. It's like I was saying before, it's all, for me, it relies entirely upon my teachers and their kindness. Let's talk about Malcolm Smith. I wonder if you might tell us how it is you met him and yeah. who he is. And also, if you could say something about those Isanga days, uh, I think they're they're dead and gone, I believe, but I'm not sure if that's true or not. So Isanga was around, I can't remember exactly when it kind of went away, but it was pre-2010. By the time it was gone, I think maybe like around 2008 or something like that. I might be mistaken. I can't remember, but but I was I was working for Wisdom Publications at the time, and I was the director of marketing and publicity for them. So I spent a lot of time researching sanghas and people in the primarily in the American Buddhist community because I was interested in personally interested in knowing who was out there and what was going on, but also professionally interested because this gave me opportunities to, to connect with practitioners and communities in order to, A, hopefully publish the right books that would be beneficial for people and then present them to those communities in a way that would actually inspire them to pick them up and read them. So I was spending a significant amount of my time interacting with sanghas and other practitioners and the easiest way to do this was uh, a lot of the times online and Isanga was there. So I was checking it many times a day. And this period of time, Malcolm and several other people that are still around that at this point I've known for many, many years were posting regularly on there and very experienced and knowledgeable practitioners. So Malcolm would just give these explanations that you weren't really receiving anywhere else, especially from a Western person, a native English speaker who had like done retreat, had learned Tibetan and was translating at that point. And now he's doing these translations of the 17 Tantras, but he's always been extraordinarily generous with his time and his knowledge ever since I first met him. And that hasn't changed. You know, he's an incredibly unique person. He's really a brilliant scholar of the teachings, an incredibly dedicated practitioner. Um, I've felt this way for many years, and I continue to feel this way, that he's the most knowledgeable non-Tibetan practitioner of Dharma that I've ever met. And... I wouldn't just limit that to like being a non-Tibetan person. I actually feel like 
Malcolm's grasp and understanding of the teachings is truly extraordinary with beyond any boundaries of, you know, this kind of dichotomy between an Eastern and Western, like he's extraordinarily knowledgeable and generous with that knowledge and always has been. And I think this puts us in a particularly unique position because now we're starting to see a generation of teachers that have had the benefit of a previous generation or two of translators and teachers and things like this. So as we develop our transmission of the teachings in the English language, we have a greater capacity of conveying that knowledge. And that's something that Malcolm is really at the forefront of, in my opinion, is really explaining things in English in a way that's not just in English, but is nuanced in the presentation of English. So he'll he'll be translating a text, for example, and he's doing cross-linguistic analysis of Tibetan terminology with Sanskrit terminology, and then presenting that with the best English equivalent that he can come up with, and then giving nuanced explanations about why. So for example, if you read his translation of Vimalamitra's commentary on the 11 Vajra topics of the Dzogchen Tantras titled Buddhahood in This Life from Wisdom Publications, if you read this and you read the introduction, it's like, you know, 25 pages of a very good example of what I'm talking about, of someone just really giving a nuanced explanation of the meaning of the teachings. And he's always he's always been like that, and he's always been very kind to me. And we first met, he also lives in Massachusetts, so we met in person around the same time and became friends and have been friends ever since. And it's been an extraordinarily beneficial relationship for me and for my practice. Thank you very much. You know, you're talking about the uh, the e-sangha, this uh, blossoming of internet message boards about Buddhism and meditation and enlightenment and so on that had a boom period. It sounds like you were really in the mix there. To oh, a certain you're... extent. I mean, I've I've never been much of a, a very prolific poster, but I think I was uh, I was a very prolific lurker, I think they say. So I, I read a lot of what other people were saying. I'm not much of a poster myself, though. Isanga kind of collapsed, and then everybody shifted over to this other forum, Dharma Wheel, and that's been going pretty active for a long time. And that now is also like seems really quiet, at least in comparison to what things used to be like online. A lot of people have kind of created their own uh, forums where people can actually interact. So instead of having this sort of like one centralized big place where all kinds of different practitioners are coming together and kind of hashing things out, I think it's now a little bit more central, not centralized, but decentralized. People are actually engaging with their own sanghas in a more direct way now that people have developed skillful uses of technology or hopefully skillful uses of technology in order to support people on the path. Like I have a, we have a discord channel for my Sangha and people are on there and they're interacting and they're asking questions and 
It's also just a nice way for people who don't live nearby each other to actually interact and share things that they're interested in. They can collaborate in the teachings. You can talk about the teachings. You can talk about, you know, what kind of music you like. Because before the pandemic, there were places where, you know, you'd go to like the temple and you'd hang out. And not everybody has that anymore. Like when I lived in Ann Arbor, this was this is what we did we'd go and we'd receive some teachings and then like we'd go out and we'd discuss the teachings and we were all together spending time in that way and now so many people are really spread out it's very expensive to have like a brick and mortar dharma center and many communities just can't afford to do that without paying without charging exorbitant fees for people to participate in programs so it's just so much easier for people to host things online and interact in that way. And having a forum where people can actually get to know each other a little bit makes collaborating as Vajra siblings, I think, much easier because then you actually feel like you have friends on the path. You don't feel like you're just kind of in isolation somewhere without anybody else to support you. That's interesting, this uh, siloing that you're describing there. I think internet culture has changed. That sort of message board culture has, has, oh, yeah. has kind of, is a little extinct, or at least it's changed a lot, moved to Discord and things, yeah. And, yeah, and those, I mean, those forums also, those forums also were famous for their spectacular flame wars and dramatic schisms. <laughs> oh yeah, that yeah, was a free for all, you know, it was like, it was so, yeah, just so weird. You know, you go to like a, a Buddhist discussion forum and everybody's fighting. Yeah, because internet. Yeah, it's the internet. And, you know, it also made it kind of exciting because everybody's just kind of going at it on there. But in that process, a lot of really extraordinary information came out. Yeah. You know, I, I missed that whole Isanga thing. <laughs> I completely missed it. It was um, fun. It passed me by by the time I was aware of such things, it had already finished pretty much. Um, yeah, fascinating. Uh, let's talk about teaching, Sogchen, because that is also, I think, something very interesting about you, is that you're teaching Sogchen uh, with the encouragement and full-throated backing of several of your teachers. And as far as I know, that's quite unusual. Could you say something about that? How did that come to be? Yeah. And and what is what are, what do those endorsements mean to you? Yeah, I think so for me it was uh I was I was very shy in the beginning about teaching at all. And I was living out here and I was kind of surprised that there wasn't much dharma going on at all in this region where I live in the Pacific Northwest. And you know, it's kind of a small town so I shouldn't have been too surprised, but anyways, I was kind of craving interactions with people that were practitioners or at least like-minded in a sense. So uh, people had found out that I had this kind of background and I had been asked to just give some sort of like meditation instruction, like host people so they could kind of like learn a little bit about how to practice in a very simple way. So I was kind of teaching guided practice sessions and things like this. This was several years ago now, probably like seven years ago this started. And I didn't really like it very much. I wasn't so interested in teaching people how to like meditate in 
just sort of like a, a secular kind of way. I was, I was far more interested in Dharma. And I decided I wasn't going to do it anymore. So I stopped doing it because it just didn't feel right. And I wasn't interested. But I then got a phone call from this woman who had come to some of those groups. And she invited me out for some tea. And she formally requested some Dharma teachings. And I was I didn't quite know what to do, to be honest. I was like, well, this is this is interesting. I'm not sure what to do. So I sent an email to Dung San Rinpoche and I told him that this had happened. And I asked for his advice. And the first piece of advice that he gave me was that I would teach some sections from the words of my perfect teacher. So I gave sort of an overview of the words of my perfect teacher to a small group of people in this friend of mine, Shirley's apartment living room. That's kind of how it started. And then more people became interested, and then we needed a bigger space. So we started meeting at the Unitarian Universalist Church here in town. And I finished the words of my perfect teacher explanation. And then I did the Bodhicharya Avatara. So I kind of started out in this way. And then after that, the pandemic hit, the COVID pandemic hit, and we couldn't meet in person anymore. So I started having to give explanations via Zoom. And I wanted to explain things that were a little bit more just kind of like my interest has always been Dzogchen teachings. I feel like those are the teachings that have been the most useful for me and would be the most useful for me to explain to other people. So I asked Ripche if it was okay if I gave teachings on the trauma nakmo cycle that I'd received from him. And he said, yes, of course, actually was his response. He said, yes, of course. So I haven't taught that yet, but this indicated that he had some kind of confidence in my ability to give some teachings. So I started giving explanations on the summoning also, uh, long chempas summoning also, this uh, finding rest in the nature of mind. And I explained that over the next it took quite some time to explain that. We would meet every Thursday night and I would give these teachings. And then it got to the point where I wanted to give people more serious teachings. And in order to actually sustain that, I had to go public. So I'd been teaching for many years privately here in this small town. And it got to the point where if it was going to be sustainable, I had to invite other people to participate if they were interested. So that's kind of when the Wrong Girl Foundation came into being and we built a website and things like that and then really started giving more serious teachings. And last December, I gave this teaching on some of these Upadesha instructions from uh, on Dzogchen teachings from Lara Blingpa that were an oral transmission to one of his students, Yukov Chatralwa. And I gave this Guru Rinpoche empowerment. And I was sharing pictures and telling Dung Sir Rinpoche what I was doing and how things were going. And he was very encouraging. And he said, this is very good. Continue in this way, essentially. So that's what I've done. I've continued in this way. So having the encouragement and the support to actually guide students, primarily other Western students 
in a very serious way does feel kind of unique because I don't really feel like there are many Western teachers out there that are confident giving people empowerments and things like that, um, especially empowerments that are done in English. There really aren't a lot of us, and many of them are older. So that feels unique, and it also feels like an honor to have that kind of confidence to be able to do this for people. But for me, it was really about being able to make sure that I did everything as seriously and authentically as possible. And I really didn't feel like I could give people the teachings that, in my opinion, they need in order to actually become awakened in this lifetime or the bardo if I couldn't do that, if I couldn't give empowerments and Dzogchen teachings and things like this, like it really felt important to me that this had to be done and it had to be done properly. It had to be done correctly. So that really kind of launched teaching Dzogchen and giving empowerments and direct introductions and things like this was this moment of confirmation and encouragement of continue doing this. And then at that point, I felt a little bit less shy and a little bit more confident in actually engaging in the teachings in this way. And people are interested and people, people are learning and people are actually having experience of the teachings, which is fantastic. So that's really the most important thing for me is that I've been fortunate to receive these teachings from my teachers and they've defined my life. And I've benefited from these teachings and we perform the two benefits. We benefit ourselves and we benefit others. So being asked to teach by a student, a potential student, and then being encouraged in my activities by my own guru put me in a position where I felt like I could really authentically benefit others in a concrete way. And that's what it's all about. Like I'm not, I'm not at all interested in anything other than helping other people have the same kind of experiences that I've had, the benefits of this particular path. And that's the entire thing. That's the entire purpose of the Wrong Girl Foundation and all of these activities is that people can actually experience some of the benefits that I've been able to experience through receiving these teachings. And I feel like I got very lucky. Like, I feel like I encountered the teachings at a time where I had a lot of opportunities to meet extraordinary teachers and to make extraordinary friends. And yeah, being in a position to hopefully help other people have similar experiences is an extraordinary honor for me and also an extraordinary responsibility that I take very seriously. You know, like I'm 100% committed to doing this for the rest of my life. I very strongly believe that if you're, if someone's going to present themselves as a teacher of this level of Dharma, you don't get to decide that you're not going to do it anymore. You can't establish this kind of relationship with people 
and then abandon them. This relationship is until Buddhahood. Like it's not, it's not a job. It's not a hobby. It's not something you decide to do because you have some kind of intellectual interest. It's something that you take extremely seriously and then you commit to doing until everybody awakens, no matter how long that takes. This is, in my opinion, this is what it really means to take on the responsibility of giving these kinds of teachings. And Malcolm Smith has also publicly endorsed you. I think he said something like, uh, Joe is my student, and I endorse him 100%. I've seen yeah. that. Yeah, it was very nice. He called me when he, when he posted that. And he was like, he told me and I went and looked and I was, I was very happy and honored, you know, to have this kind of support from people that I have so much respect for and so much gratitude toward. And yeah, it's, it's really been a wonderful experience. And yeah, I think years of kind of taking my time and being shy about the entire process was very good for me and for anyone who decides to interact with me in this way because i spent i was able to spend several years examining my motivation and every time I teach, I'm able to examine my motivation and make sure that my motivation is for the benefit of students and not because I have some sort of case of guruitis or any kind of bullshit like that. So I've been able to actually examine myself as authentically as I can for many years in the position of giving explanations of the Dharma to make sure that that's that it's not just some sort of weird trip that I'm on where I kind of want to be in this kind of position because that doesn't, that doesn't serve anyone. It becomes, it becomes a degradation of the teachings. If your motivation is to be, you know, seen in a certain way, right? Like if, if a teacher is motivated by the way that they're perceived rather than by the benefit that they can do, then this means that you've actually started to manipulate the teachings into your own delusion. So being able to actually spend years examining my motivation and make sure that that wasn't a part of it at all has, I think, put me in a position to be a better teacher and a better practitioner because it's not so easy to all of a sudden have everybody like listening to what you're saying. It's like it's, it can be kind of daunting. It can be a lot of pressure, right? Especially if you take the teaching seriously and you want to make sure that you're not making mistakes that are actually going to harm people's path. So you, the role is very serious and I take it very seriously. So it means a great deal to me to have people that I have that kind of respect for actually express confidence in me and my capacity. You know, one way of becoming a meditation teacher is to do uh, some sort of teacher training. And there are many now uh, mindfulness or trainings and so on that one can take. And upon completing that training, 
one is you know a mindfulness teacher right and there's a de facto endorsement there from whoever is at the helm of that whether they're necessarily delivering the training or not sometimes mm-hmm. you know it's, it's like an underling or something but um the sort of Dzogchen endorsement is something a little different from what I understand, but perhaps you can correct me on that. Does it imply, what does it imply? Does it imply a certain kind of recognition of a level of understanding and attainment, at least? Is there, does it imply something else beyond that? What, what's implied in, a, in, a, in particular in a Dzogchen? endorsement the like of which you receive from Mark and Smith 100% endorsement or recent yeah I think you know we have this diversity in how this actually occurs in how someone becomes a teacher in our tradition so there are training programs you know you can go and like live in a monastery and become a Kempo or a Geshe or whatever and then this kind of by de facto like you're saying means that you're a teacher and yeah those are routes and then there's also like you know sanghas that have established teacher training programs and things like that where people can kind of come out and you know acquire the title of being a lama or uh, an acharya or whatever something like that Um, but there's also kind of a more organic process where you you kind of display your diligence by practicing you know and I think that's been that's really kind of been the thing for me I think is that I've really made a sincere effort to apply the instructions I've received from my teachers as much as I can to do the requisite retreats you know for example you have like three roots retreats Lama, Yudam, and Dakini retreats. And these are connected with usually like recitation accumulations and things like this. And I've done all of these, um, Nundro and things like this. So you kind of go through and you diligently do each one of these steps in this kind of formulaic way. And this, not only do you actually get the benefit of the experience of doing those practices, but then your teachers and your Vajra siblings, they witness that you're actually serious, and that you're practicing diligently. And if you're practicing diligently, then it's kind of hard for there not to be at least some sort of ripening of the teachings or like the teachings actually becoming a part of how you live your life, like in a real way, rather than just something that you're doing. And I think that's essentially what it's been for me is that I am a totally normal person. You know, I grew up, like we talked about last time, a pretty normal way. Uh, I just happened to have a particular interest in the teachings and I was interested in practicing. So I practiced diligently. And I also was lucky to have circumstances that allowed me to do so, like working for a Buddhist publishing house or like a Dharma center when I was in college. These afforded me opportunities to like, to do prostrations on my lunch break or whatever, you know? So I had very fortunate circumstances and that just, that created a life for me that was rooted in practice. And I think that more than anything was what 
actually brought that about for me and probably is what inspired people to ask me to share that experience a little bit. And then having maintained all of my commitments with my teachers over the years and them knowing that probably helped them to establish confidence in my capacity a little bit. So it developed organically in this way. So I didn't kind of like go through some sort of certification process or anything like that. And, you know, like students, they, they feel inspired, you know, and they want to like, they want to be polite and respectful to their teacher. So people started asking, people started calling me Lama. And I was like, I don't have this title. You know, I was like, no one gave me this title. And I was kind of, you know, again, I was embarrassed. You know, I was, little, I was shy and embarrassed. I was like, why? Well, no one said that I'm Lama so-and-so or anything like that. So I felt a little embarrassed again. So I sent Dungsen Rinpoche an email. And I said, Rinpoche, people are saying this. Is this okay? And he gave me, again, I think really excellent advice. His response was something along the lines of, the only person who can really determine if someone is their Lama is the person that's sitting in front of them. So I feel particularly honored because I got that title, quote unquote, from students, not from getting a kind of certification or anything like that. Like people that feel like they're benefiting from the teachings that they're receiving from me started using that title much to my embarrassment. And then my teacher kind of, he explained what the essence of that really means and that it, it really is dependent upon the student. Like if the student is benefiting from those teachings, then that's really, the ball is in the student's court. And the ball is really always in the student's court and that's where it should be because the teacher's job is to explain the teachings the student's job is to apply them to the best of their ability. And your awakening is completely dependent upon your own diligence at that point. So if someone actually feels like they're benefiting from the teachings, this, I feel, was an extraordinary honor to have people actually, to have students bestow that title upon me as opposed to kind of receiving it just because I did some things, you know. Like I went through certain courses or anything like that, or did a certain type of retreat. So to me, that's very special that the people that are benefiting from the teachings, actually, they're the ones that made that decision. Very fascinating, Joe. Thank you. I appreciate you being open about your own reflections also about your teachers and about your own blossoming teaching role and sharing your own responses, I suppose, to each of each level uh, that you're going through, each stage you're going through in that process. Yeah, it's my, it's my pleasure. I think there's a lot of mystique and a lot of ideas and fantasies that we can have about our teachers. And this sometimes makes them difficult to relate to. But if we recognize that we're all people doing our best to practice the path and to accomplish the two benefits. I think this is very important. And I think being transparent about 
our experience as teachers and as students is beneficial because instead of coming on, I can come on and I can have this conversation and we could talk about, you know, oh, I had this very like magical experience this one time on retreat, which, you know, we kind of did a little bit last time, but that only serves so much like that can inspire people a little bit. But if people really come to understand some sort of concrete knowledge about what it means to really practice diligently as a part of your everyday life, then this becomes much more meaningful than kind of magic and mystery and fantasies, right? Because then we get to actually see what it's like to live as a practitioner. And this is, in my opinion, very important because we don't have much time and we don't really have much time at all for fantasies. And, you know, as Dzogchen practitioners, we don't, we don't really have the luxury of relying upon dogmas and things like this. We can kind of spend our time as practitioners building up this kind of appearance of performative ritual and dogmas and things like that. But if we're really being sincere and authentic and serious and discovering our own state and sustaining that, we don't have the luxury of spending our time on performance and on fantasy. We have to discover who and what we are and manifest all of that potentiality while we have the time to do so. And that means that we really live our lives as Dzogchen practitioners, not just by relying upon surface level dogmas and performative rituals and things like this. Well, thank you for your generosity then in sharing your inner workings. We're putting it. And speaking of time, well, I think we're out of time. Ah. And this has been a fab fabulous conversation. Thank you so much. Is there anything you'd like to say, uh, anything on your mind left to say? We've covered so much today. Is there anything mm -hmm. left you'd like to talk about uh, or mention before we finish for today? I think to close for me, if if people are sincerely interested in Dzogchen teachings and you apply yourself to practicing this path as diligently as you can, you can do this. You can accomplish this path. Sometimes people have this idea that maybe, oh, Dzogchen teachings are too high for them, or maybe they feel like they don't understand the teachings right now and that this somehow limits their capacity. Everybody really has the same capacity because everybody has the same state. Everybody has the same nature. The only thing that limits us from manifesting that potentiality is our dedication and our diligence. So if you're sincerely interested and you receive the teachings in a proper way and you apply those instructions to the best of your ability by doing your best, this is possible for you. I have 100% confidence in Dzogchen teachings. And I also have 100% confidence in anybody who receives Dzogchen teachings from me and applies them diligently or from my teachers. I think this is very important. People have to have confidence in their teachers. They have to have confidence in their own path. And with that confidence, they practice diligently. 
And for me, this is everything. Might I ask, where does that total confidence come from? What's it based on? Confidence in this context means that you actually have real knowledge. So if you really know something, you have confidence in the subject. So if you receive Dzogchen transmission and empowerment in an appropriate way, you receive the Upadesha instructions and you practice diligently, you then experience some of the ripening of that transmission and those teachings for yourself. It's not a theory. It's not an idea that you have. It's an experience. It's something that you really know. It's like I could sit here forever and I could explain chocolate to you or to anybody. And you might have some ideas about chocolate, but you're never gonna know what chocolate actually is until you taste it. Then you have the confidence of chocolate. You know what it is. And you also know how you received that confidence. So this is how we honor the kindness and generosity of our teachers is because we actually have this experience. And then when we have this experience, we have confidence. And based upon that confidence, we're inspired to practice. And when we're inspired to practice, our diligence only increases. And this is really what it means to receive the blessings of the teacher or the blessings of the lineage, is that now you really have this knowledge and you're really applying yourself to it diligently because you're inspired to do so. This is real blessings, right? And this is confidence through directly knowing that which you've been introduced to. Joe Evans, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.